Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard, or believed to be true, about how the human body works, and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy! So let's talk a little bit about neuroplasticity, and just a general warning, because we're getting into things that people will go about saying they say, they say, they say, and I really don't care about what they say, I only care about what the science tells us. So first thing we have to talk about is we have to talk about the ability that neurons have to repair and regenerate themselves. You are constantly sprouting new synapses. At the same time, you're also losing synapses. The sprouting and losing of synapses is what is the actual plasticity that takes place within the nervous system. Along with sprouting and losing synapses. The other thing that takes place within the nervous system is that you are undergoing to a very small degree a turnover of neurons at the same, same way that we turn over all the other cells within the body. But what ends up happening is that the rate at which neurons are lost is much greater than the rate at which neurons are ultimately gained as they go through their life cycle. And that's because the neurons that we do gain come about from stem cells going through their proliferative phases and becoming neurons. What we don't get is we don't get neurons from pre-existing neurons. Because of this, because of the limited ability to have regenerative repair, we do not have a large degree of regeneration that can take place within the central nervous system and that has more to do with growth factors inhibiting axonal growth more than anything else. In the periphery, we can have a degree of repair within the neurons themselves. There is not a large amount of regeneration of the neurons. That is, we're not actually gaining new neurons in the periphery. Most of the regeneration that takes place in the periphery is due to the Schwann cell maintained in the neural tubes within the nerve itself, allowing for the axon to grow to its terminus. When we look at the, react, at the rate of regeneration repair, part of this has to do with how much stimulus the individual neuron is receiving. When neurons receive stimulus, as we'll see here in a second, we get a rapid amount of growth that takes place within the neuron. This rapid amount of growth that takes place within the neuron allows for increased synaptic activities along with a more robust axon. When we inhibit the neuron, we end up losing the sprouting of synaptic areas and we lose the robustness of the neuron. The increase of synapses and the increase of robustness of the neuron allows for the neuron to convey signals at faster conduction speeds based off of Henneman's size principle. Under the right conditions, we can actually generate additional neurons without having to worry about loss of neurons. There are distinct areas within 
the central nervous system, in particular within the cerebral cortex, around the lateral ventricles of the cerebral cortex, so basically right in the center of the temporal lobe, in an area that is very close to the hippocampus, the insula, as well as the limbical gyres. And these are coming from cells known as epididymal cells. And what ends up happening is that when there is excessive amounts of growth factor that gets exuded because of excessive amounts of neural stress taking place. And by neural stress, I mean exuberant amount of, or a large amount of synaptic transmissions occurring. What ends up happening is that these epididymal cells get a signal and the signal says sprout. And they sprout and they grow in what's referred to as a radial fashion along pre-existing axons up into the cortical regions of those limbical areas. They will then sprout out axons. As they sprout out axons, they will start to synapse. If the synapses are available, they will go about the maturation process of becoming neurons. If the synapses do not stay viable, they will undergo apoptosis and will be lost. There are two really cool studies that have come out within the last 20 years that have shown that individuals who are excessively active learners actually have cerebral cortices that are denser than those that are not continuous active learners. One of the greatest studies that came out that looked at this was looking at the limbical nuclei associated with memory, attaching the hippocampus with the insula and out into the prefrontal cortex of uh, taxi drivers in London, where the taxi drivers have to learn all of the roads and the ways around town without using a GPS. They basically go to school in order to do this. And what they found is that students who survived the first year of schooling had greater hippocampal density than students who did not survive the first year of schooling. And students that continued through second and third year of schooling within the taxi driver education, not only had a uh, larger synaptic density within the hippocampus, but actually had a more dense hippocampal gyre, as well as insular bodies within the temporal lobes. There are a whole bunch of factors that are going to come into play as it relates to the neurogenic processes, and we'll get a look at these under uh, distinct conditions in a second here. But what ends up happening is that if we're able to grow the neurons and the neurons are able to survive, we end up having a greater density of neurons within the central nervous system. Under normal conditions, we actually will be losing neurons and we lose synaptic junctions, what we usually refer to as pruning, that takes place. And it takes place in order to make a more efficient neuronal pathway. And that's simply because there's less nodes that, they have, that we have to convey, less synapses that we have to use. There are distinct environmental conditions that actually lead to excessive proliferation. And these are mainly due to environmental conditions and environmental stresses that increase a couple of key growth factors. And the two key growth factors here are what's referred to as brain-derived neural growth factor, BDNF, and vascular epithelial growth factor, VEGF. The brain-derived neural growth factor, BDNF, is what's going to stimulate noggin to be 
activated, and that's going to allow for these epididymal cells to start to convert into neurons. If we don't get VGEF at the same time, we don't get new growth of blood vessels into this developing neuronal network. And because neurons are aerobic obligated tissue, they have to have a constant perfusion of blood going through it. So they have constant rate of exchange of gases as well as nutrients. So as to maintain the aerobic metabolism that is necessary for them to regenerate their ATP. Anything that's going to depress that key signal will reduce the amount of neuronal genesis that takes place. Not only is it going to reduce the amount of neuronal genesis that takes place, but it's also going to limit the amount of sprouting that takes place within the dendrites. And it's going to actually lead to a synaptic pruning later on. Most of what we look at in terms of what is referenced as neurogenesis isn't really neurogenesis. What it is, is it's synaptogenesis. That is the making of new synapses. And when we're talking about synaptogenesis, what we're really talking about is a phenomenon known as Habian synapse. Habian synapse is the ability for neurons within a unit or a network of neurons to synchronously fire or have activity that is synchronous within that network. By having synchronicity within the network, what it does is it strengthens the network and it triggers additional synapse formation so that synchronicity can be maintained. And so when we look at this synchronicity and we look at the changes that we see within the synapses themselves as it relates to the neuroplasticity, when we look at the convergence and divergence of signals, we look at the sum summation patterns, one of the things that has to happen on the neuron that is being summated on is that we have to get through what's referred to as the jitter fast enough in order to be able to reach threshold by the time the next signal gets there. And so what ends up happening is that if we're not synchronous, we end up having an issue. And the issue we end up having is in here is in what's referred to as the jitter. And so what's up happening is that we want this signal to pass along. And we want it to go down the network. But what happens is, is that if we're out of sync, the area is gonna be in refractory when the next signals are attempting to come in. And that being in refractory is what's referred to as the jitter. That is how long does it take for the second and the third and the fourth action potential to be passed along as we start to have multiple signals coming down onto our convergent center. Because what we want is we wanna have this signal pass along. 
And so what ends up happening is that the neurons through reverberating pathways and through secondary tangential axonal projections, they coordinate their firing. And so what ends up happening is that they're all gonna fire onto the central neuron at the same time. And so what we're able to do on the central neuron is that we're able to now get all three signals coming together and have the same relative jitter, the same relative delay that we had on the first signal. This synchronicity between all of the neurons allows for a stronger and more robust signal to get passed through and allows for a greater coordination of signals between areas within the nervous system. This is the same phenomenon that's taking place as you learn new material, where you start with, I have a pathway laid down. As I have a pathway laid down, I start getting secondary messengers. I start getting new information. And I start to get that new information to sync up with the older information that I have already learned. And then I start to get even more information put into play. And eventually what ends up happening is that all of the information will be able to coalesce around a single node, a single ganglion or single nuclei within the nervous system so that we have a more smooth and succinct passage of information. The other plasticity that takes place at the synapse is the convergence of the chemical synapse to the electrical synapse and the electrical synapse back to the chemical synapse based off of use or disuse. The more you use the synapse, the tighter those membranes become because we get more density within the membranes. And it gets to the point where the connexons holding the membranes in place actually act like ion channels that allow for ions to move directly from the presynaptic membrane to the postsynaptic membrane. As we start to use the synapse, what ends up happening is we start to develop more synaptic vesicles within the synaptic bulb or the terminal bulb of the presynaptic neuron. We start getting a greater density of these synaptic vesicles on the membrane itself, simply just waiting for the calcium influx to allow for the efflux, the release of the neurotransmitters. We get an upregulation of receptors on the postsynaptic membrane. All of those things lead to what's referred to as a strengthening of the synapse. As we start to use the synapse less, what ends up happening is that we now start producing less vesicles. We start producing less of the actual neurotransmitters because we're not using it as much. That reduces the mass within the terminal bouton of the neuron. And that causes the membrane itself to start to pull away from the postsynaptic membrane as we get less density in the area.
as the synapse is being used less often, the postsynaptic membrane will actually downregulate receptors because this doesn't need to be activated as often as it does. And what's happening is that those membranes will slowly start to pull away and pull away and pull away. If there's enough distance in between the membranes altogether, that synapse itself will be lost. When we start losing synapses, we use the term pruning. And so when we look at synaptic plasticity, what we're talking about is we're talking about the ability to prune chemical synapses by making them very strong or making them very weak, or induce the synapse to convert from a chemical synapse to an electrical synapse. If we start to get stronger synapses in the area, we're also gonna get additional synapses in the area. And so what we end up getting when we start having the synaptic habian processing going on is that we start off with a few synapses. As we start to synchronize the area, we start getting more synapses taking place within that nervous ending. We get more synapses, allowing for greater levels of synchronicity to take place. It also allows for differential messages to be passed through much easier. Opposite of the sprouting of the synapses, the additional synapses, we also will lose synapses if we start to have sort of asynchronous firing. It's very hard to go from a very robust synaptic network to a highly atrophied synaptic network. However, it's very easy to go from a normal synaptic network to a very atrophied synaptic network. When we have this atrophying of the synapses, if there is enough atrophying of the synapses, the neuron itself will start to undergo apoptosis. This apoptotic signaling is what neurodegenerative diseases are, where there's not enough synaptic activity taking place, and because there's not enough synaptic activity taking place, the neuron itself says, I'm not being used enough, it's time for me to shut down. As you learn materials, you build this highly robust network of synapses. As you stop rehearsing that material, the synapses will progress from the robust synchronous synaptic network back towards the normal network. And then as we continue to stop using that network, we then go towards the atrophy that takes place with excessive amounts of asynchronous firing. Part of what this does is it leads to the actual neural anatomical changes that we see within the cerebral cortex. And most of it has to do with the changes of the densities of the neurons that we see. As we start having greater amounts of firing taking place, 
what we're seeing here is we're seeing synaptogenesis and we're seeing hypertrophication of the neurons based off of use. And what this hypertrophication of the neurons based off of use does is it generates areas of high density and areas of low density based off of use and disuse. The areas of high density, because of the axonal tensional lines within the cerebral cortex, actually pull down on the areas around it as they sink, because that's what dense things do. And this will form the key structures that we think about when we think about the cerebral cortex and the folds that exist within it. And so based off of the use and disuse of the neurons, we're able to generate the sulcies and the gyres that are hallmarks of the cerebral cortex. One of the things that takes place within this plastic activity is issues that arise as the neurons start to undergo an aging process. As we start to undergo aging processes, there is a natural process by which the neurons slowly start to lose metabolic functions. They slowly start to lose metabolic functions because the mitochondria start to reduce the rate at which they are undergoing their divisions. We start having increasing ROS accumulation within the neuron themselves. We start having disruption of the aerobic metabolism. And by losing neuronal functions, we slowly have a decay in overall functions of the systems. And we slowly have a decay of overall functions of the system due to a dysregulation of homeostasis. The nervous system is no longer able to have that instantaneous regulation of homeostasis. And because we no longer have the instantaneous regulation of homeostasis, we go into a rapid dysregulation. A lot of symptoms of old age can be attributed to this dysregulation of homeostasis that we see. The initial signs of this reduction of functionality is seen with motor functions, followed by issues with what we use for to as memory functions. The rate of loss is highly correlated to changes of cardiovascular functions and aerobic fitness. And I'm gonna get a little bit more into this here in a second here with a secondary talk. And that has to do with the fact that the tissue is aerobic obligated. Because it's aerobic obligated, we only have that three to five minute window of time by which we're able to, to survive any loss of perfusion. Because of changes of the mitochondria and because of the change of rate of ATP turnover, we start to reduce transmission rates. There's a 5% reduction of synaptic transmission rate by the age of 50. There's a 90% reduction from maximal transmission rates by the age of 70. Around the sixth to seventh decade of life, we will start seeing changes within the, the sulcuses and the gyres. 
The changes in sulcus and gyrus has to deal with the fact that we have we now have less synaptic activity. And so instead of getting bigger, the tissues are going to start getting smaller. And that atrophying causes the tissues to become less dense and they start to pull away from each other. As they start to pull away from each other, we start having slower rates of synaptic transmission, which leads to tissues being pulled even further away. Most of the rationale that we have for this rate of reduction is all about aerobic metabolism. That is, we lose mitochondrial functioning. And it's tied directly to the aerobic energetic, energetic physiology of the neurons. And because we start to reduce the rate at which ATP is being able to be turned over, we start having interactions of reactive species. We start having issues within the membrane in terms of its ability to depolarize and repolarize. We lose the ability for the neurons to transmit at the rate at which they need to transmit. As we start getting the atrophine of the axon, proteins within the actual axon itself start to be released from the membrane. The most important of these are what are referred to as neurofilamental fibers. And the neurofilamental fibers will start to coat along the axon itself and around the synaptic ends of the axon. As they start to get released from the neuron itself, the chemicals that they interact with cause a denaturing to take place. What happens instead of sitting in a nice little helical shape and in a nice beta sheet shape, they start to kind of twist and turn and they kink on themselves. And they kink on themselves and they start to form what, are, what we call plaque formations. And the two key proteins that lead to this denaturing of the synapses are called tau, T-A-U, in amyloid, A-M-Y-L-O-I-D. And we know that there are external things that will lead to issues within the nervous system in which high levels of stress leads to high levels of stress hormones, increased atherosclerosis, increased ROS accumulation and reduced vascular flow. All of these things trigger inflammation. Inflammation triggers the tau and amyloid accumulation, which triggers neurodegenerative disease, in this case here, Alzheimer's. What high levels of stress also does is it blocks any type of synaptogenic processing taking place. If you're under high levels of stress, your ability to learn drops. When you're under high levels of stress, your ability to retain the neurons that you have drops. However, as people start to become more active, what ends up happening is we get a change of signals. And the change of signals leads to an increase of angiogenesis, a reduction of inflammation, and a neural growth factoring that counteracts the signals that are coming from stress and will block 
the neurodegenerative disease, in this case here, Alzheimer's. These external stresses counterbalance each other in such a way that we have to look at them as if they are dichotomous within a homeostatic balance. Peripherally, the plasticity that we see deals with the ability to establish what we refer to as response loops. Response loops allow for instantaneous motor action without cognitive input. This is where we're able to do complex patterned motions without having to think about doing the patterned motions. When the patterned motion becomes ingrained, the patterned motion is referred to as a centrally patterned generated motion. Centrally patterned generated motions we originally refer to as stereotyped movements. The stereotype movements are not what you think about when we think about stereotypes. The stereotype movements are the base pattern of motion. And so walking has a stereotyped motion. And the stereotype motion is triple flexion leads to triple extension, leads to propulsion, leads to triple flexion, leads to triple extension, leads to propulsion, triple flexion, triple extension, leads to propulsion. That is the stereotype motion. We can change that stereotype motion based off of external cueing. Like instead of just walking, we can go about and start to run. We can take that same stereotype motion and turn it into a secondary pattern of movement, such as we're now playing soccer or whatever else in the world calls football. And instead of just running, now what do we have to toss into our stereotype motion? We now have to toss in kicking. And so for anybody who's ever had to teach a young child how to do things, the first thing you have to do is you have to break up the stereotype motion in order to get them to learn how to go about doing the motion that you're desiring. It's easier to do this when you're young. It's easier to do this when you're young because you're able to trigger plastic changes within the peripheral units at a faster rate than you can than when you're old. As you start to stop using the pathways, the same process that we just referenced centrally happens peripherally. The other problem that happens peripherally is that we start to lose proprioceptive responses. We, we start to lose sensation in the distal areas. Part of this loss of sensation in the distal areas has to deal with the fact that we have a reduction of transmission speed within the axon. But the other part that happens is that excessive exposure to the distinct senses and distinct sense modalities lead to desensitization of the receptors. And there are a few receptors that do not desensitize. And one of them is your eyeballs, vision. And this leads to a biomechanical issue that comes about for older individuals 
And it's a walking pattern that I like to call the old person shuffle. And the old person shuffle is where the person's head is down so they can see their feet because their eyes are still okay even though they still need even though they may need glasses and they can see their feet. And they have poor proprioception so they don't know how much to rotate anymore. And so they take small little steps. They take small little steps so they can still see their feet and know where they're placing their feet. And as they start to lose even more sensation, they start to look even closer at their feet. And they start to look closer at their feet. And they start to look closer to the feet. And they take smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller shuffles until they are scooting as they move along. We can counterbalance most of these aging issues. And it has led to marketing ploys amongst a whole bunch of companies, particularly the train your brain companies. But the thing is, is that research has shown that the train the brain doesn't do anything. But what does do stuff is being physically active. The more physically active the person is, the less regression we see within the nervous system, mainly because they're able to maintain their aerobic fitness levels. And we're gonna look predominantly here at cognition. However, we still see it with other factors. And we have four distinct populations that we actually have evidence where being physically active actually helps. For populations that need improvement in, excuse me, for all the populations, we see an improvement in the transition of long-term memory to short-term memory, and then the movement between these memories with their functional components, that is the ability to recall and use what you need to know. For the elderly, what this does is this reduces the rate of fabrication and increases the rate of factual recall. And for the elderly, this leads to one key factor for all elderly person, and that is the ability to stay independent. If you ask an old person or an older person what their fear is, their fear is being moved out of their house into a facility and then dying in that facility. And the more we can keep them neurologically stable, the less dysregulation they have, and the longer they're able to live independent or relatively independent. For students, there is an increase in proficiency performances regardless of the amount of time spent studying. And that's because there's an increased ability to synthesize and retain new, new materials. For students that have diagnosable learning disabilities, there is improved behavioral and functional capacities within the classrooms, as well as within life situations. 
for individuals with cognitive disorders and traumatic brain injury. There's an increased ability to learn new things and remember old things that were forgotten, leading to an increased ability to be independent. When we look at the exercise issues here, there are two key factors that come into the exercise issue that make it more pronounced in terms of the benefits that we get cognitively and neurologically than with others. And that is self-selection and the ability to do what they're able to do. When we talk about self-selection, what we're talking about is allowing the person to select what pattern of exercise they want to do. People who do exercise that they want to do are more apt to do that exercise. If, however, exercise is limited based off what's referred to as social preferential biases, there is a reduced reward scene from doing the exercise, and it can actually lead to the person not being willing to do any exercise whatsoever, full withdrawal from exercise. Part of the selection with the self-selection and the psychological rewarding is also about what can they physically do and how that physical ability can transition into the maximum amount of benefit that we can give them from the exercise selection. For cognitive improvement, performing counter-moving patterns of motion seems to provide greatest neurological benefit for individuals that have some sort of cognitive disability, traumatic brain injury, or are elderly. This is because we're increasing the level of recruitment necessary in order to do the activity and thereby increasing the drive to have a Habian synaptic change take place. For students, it's a little bit different. For students, instead of having this highly complex pattern of behavior, we want to have is we want to reduce the amount of stress in the environment. By reducing the amount of stress in the environment, we're able to improve the level of stress that they're being exposed to and allow them to reduce the general level of inflammation that they have. So how does this come about? It's all about changing hormonal signals to allow for increased recruitment of growth factors. And so what we're able to do is we're able to increase the amount of new proteins being synthesized, and we're also able to increase the amount of beneficial metabolites being synthesized. And what this does is this leads to axonal 
dendritic and terminal branching taking place, allowing for more robust neurons to exist. What it also does is it also leads to an increased elaboration within the neuronal networks based off of how we allow the recruiting pattern to take place. For those that need to have an improvement in memory retention, elderly individuals, people with learning disabilities, people with cognitive disabilities, people who have traumatic brain injury. What we want to do is we want to increase the complexity of the movements that are taking place, changing the social dynamic that they're being involved with, changing the external and internal environment so that what we're doing is we're creating more synaptic activity, driving a greater total amount of neuronal activity. By driving a greater neuronal amount of activity, we're able to increase the robustness of the neurons. For the students, however, what we want to do is we want to make sure that the synapses that are firing are the synapses that are necessary for the learning issues. We do this by eliminating environmental distractions while doing exercise. That reduces the general level of stress that is taking place and allows for greater growth of axons and greater growth of dendrites by changing the hormonal signaling that takes place. And what this does is allows for those epididymal cells to go about their sprouting techniques, their synaptic junctioning techniques, and their axonal projection techniques, allowing for a greater total density of neurons within the area and thereby increasing the total number of available networks within any area. Most of what we see in terms of benefits that come about is due to changes of the inflammatory state. We increase the amount of blood flow heading through the area, increase the amount of perfusion, reducing the amount of inflammation, and thereby getting the neurons the stay-around signal as opposed to the apoptotic signal. The neurons that are staying around, because we are constantly having those neurons firing amongst each other, we get the synapses to become stronger and move towards being electrical while pruning away neuronal connections that are not necessary. We also start having an equilibration between hippocampal and amygdalar functioning, particularly within the relays going to the mammillary body, which reduces general level of stress and allows for the growth factors to have their effect. We have a change in energetics where we reduce ROS accumulation. Not only do we reduce ROS accumulation, we actually start to clear ROSs by increasing the amount of antioxidants available to the neurons. And most of this comes about because we have a general reduction in overall inflammatory processes. And by reducing overall inflammatory processes, we allow for normal growth to take place. We'll see this again and again and again. 
the reason why we have atrophying taking place is because inflammation outweighs anti-inflammation. And whenever we can reduce inflammation, we're going to see a benefit to the tissues by allowing them to grow and or be maintained. And so one of the really cool things that we've seen within the research as it relates to particularly learning and stress is when we have a self-selection towards exercise in the animal, in this case here, rodents, what we notice is that within the amygdala, if they are not being forced to do what they need to do, we get an overall reduction of amygdalar connections, while we get an increase in overall hippocampal connections. And this change in connections allows for better limbic functioning that relates to memory. One of the really interesting things that has come about when we look at learning, particularly the retention of memory in older individuals, is that simply doing exercise is not enough. We actually have to challenge the level of exercise that they are doing so as to stimulate the synaptic junctions to increase the level of plasticity that takes place. The other thing we start seeing is we start seeing a change in brainwave patterning, particularly amongst students, where we get a normalization of brainwave patterning in both active thought as well as in relaxed reflective thought that leads to both a better overall homeostatic functionality as well as better performance in all academic settings. There are a couple of correlations, and yes, I know correlation is not causation, but there are a couple of very good correlations that have come out recently that have shown that individuals that, are, that have higher aerobic fitness tend to have higher analytical scores on standardized examinations. And the rationale provided by the researchers as it relates to this aspect is that we get better perfusion through the areas of the cerebral cortex necessary to perform those activities. And we have a better density of neuronal activity within the areas that are necessary to perform those activities. And by density of activity, I mean we get a tighter window of hotspots and a more synchronous peaking of electrical activities in the areas that are active for these activities. Are there any questions on the plasticity issues?
So when you say like challenging, like mm-hmm. the other's brain, like on top of exercise, do you mean like doing like maybe like word? Cross so up? like for, for older individuals? Mm-hmm. So doing exercise on like non-compliant surfaces. Mm-hmm. Like instead of just walking on a treadmill, walking outside. Okay. Uh, if they're going to lift weights, do something where they're doing a flexion on the right side and an extension on the left side. Mm-hmm. So they're not doing the same motion bilaterally. On mm-hmm. the contralateral side, they're doing something different. Okay. One of the easy, one of the easy ways to increase the complexity of of the exercise, and you see this. Well, actually, you don't see it so much because of the quarantine, and you don't see it so much because malls are closing. But a lot of the older individuals would do what's what people would call the mall walking clubs. Um, where all the old people would get together and commiserate about how all the young people are awful. <laughs> just like how their old people would commiserate about how awful they were. That's mm-hmm. how generations work. But simply walking and talking mm-hmm. because you now have secondary things going on. Oh, okay. Increases the complexity of, of the activity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's two really cool studies that came out of Sweden and out of Austria, I think, where they actually put individuals on an exercise bike and just had them ride. And they looked at rates of recall where they were just riding the exercise bike mm-hmm. versus riding the exercise bike with like the television, uh, what's that? Uh, system called um, where it shows you like the outside environment like you're riding the bike outside Mm -hmm. and they actually had they actually show a a, there's an actual uh, small decrease seen from just riding the bike Mm -hmm. relative to when they were uh, riding the bike with the external environment being seen oh okay that's cool so it would be better to ride the bike outside than like... It would be better to ride the bike outside as long... Once again, it goes back to that fifth point. Mm-hmm, yeah. What can you do? Mm-hmm. And so when, you, when you're getting to the, to the geriatric ages, putting them on the recumbent bike is much safer than putting them on yeah. a bike outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mainly because of the reduction of neurotransmission and balance issues and things like that. But what you could do is you could put them on the recumbent bike and have them ride and have a screen in front of them where they're seeing the environment move and they have and they're kind of moving with the environment. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? Okay. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to send you out into your lab groups here. And you're going to work on the first part of lab 10. And that's the nerve membrane and size. And it's going to reflect back on what we talked about last week as it relates to threshold potential and the size principle. We'll do that to uh, 625. I'm going to bring you back and we will talk about reactions and reflexes.
and then I'm going to send you into your lab group to perform this lab. In this lab, you'll be collecting data. You'll be doing the testing at home with yourself. What you're going to be doing is you're going to be inputting the data into this data table here. What you want to make sure you're doing is putting it into the correct data table. So if you're a male that is not stimulated, and by stimulated, we mean not having consumed caffeine or taken any type of stimulant drug or supplement within the last 40 minutes before doing the test, you will do the tables that say just male. If you're a male and you're stimulated, you will do and input your data into the male stimulated. On each of the tables, there is a yellow line. When you get onto the data table, you're going to go to the first row that you see that doesn't have a yellow line. You're going to put a number that doesn't appear on that data table where it says subject ID. Do not put your name. I repeat, do not put your name. And you'll use this data that's coming in for doing your lab report. I am giving you the summary tables in terms of the data. However, you are going to be responsible for producing the actual tables themselves. And so we'll get a little bit more detail into that when we actually get into doing the lab stuff. So I'm going to put you into your groups right now.